0: So much of the world uh, views surrogacy as illegal and criminal, and that think it's the commodification of women or of women's bodies. And so there's a lot of judgment surrounding surrogacy. You know, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine recommends that there be a medical reason uh, to move forward with surrogacy. And a medical reason could be that you can't do it on your own. If you're a man, you obviously can't have a baby on your own.
1: Welcome back to It Takes a Village, Our Path to Leo. I'm Alex Ammons, and the person you just heard speaking was Judith Haikst. Judith is the owner of a legal practice dedicated to Assisted Reproductive Technology Law, or ART Law. She is a fierce advocate for family formation via surrogacy, for reasons you'll hear about in a bit. In this episode, we dive deeper into the details of ART law, the ways Colorado surrogacy laws are the most comprehensive in the country, and how the laws protect both the gestational carrier and the parents-to-be. Plus, Brian and Ty share about their second surrogate and the ways their family plans were devastatingly derailed. When you go into this relationship with a surrogate, contractually, what's the understanding of what's required between you and the surrogate?
2: I mean, the base of the contract obviously states that they are entering a contract to be a gestational carrier and that for our child, and that, you know, there's no questions that it's our child and that. Once the child is born, it immediately becomes, you know, we take possession of it, and they don't have any legal rights or responsibilities, you know, for the child. Yeah, um, and that's a big part of it, right? It's it's not just like,
3: and this always stuck out to me with the contracting. It's not just the rights. It's like it's also the responsibility. It's also protection for the surrogate and her partner, because like they didn't sign up to have another child right so it's like the contract is not only to protect us so that you know said child does does come home with us but i think it's also to protect the surrogate, so that like intended parents can't be like oh well we got divorced we decided we hate each other during this process we don't want it anymore right
2: everything else is negotiable successor
1: For example, if Brian and Ty were both to die in a plane crash while the surrogate was seven months pregnant, a successor would need to be named because the surrogate did not actually sign up for a child, only to carry one.
2: That's where the attorney is really helpful, because originally I think I was like, like how involved can one of these contracts actually be? And then you start going through all the stipulations and holy cow, it is, you know, people have been doing this for decades. And so, you know, there's a lot of precedent and there's a lot of situations you would never think of that are spelled out in these contracts to protect both parties from, you know, what can happen. And So having someone who's been through this, specifically an attorney that's been through this type of law, I think is uh,
1: very helpful. The other example they played out for me was a gestational carrier who lives in a different state than where the parents-to-be reside.
3: So then, you have to also factor in various state laws, right? So the state laws in Colorado around surrogacy are not the same as the state laws around surrogacy in Montana. So another thing to think about for, for couples who are looking at surrogacy does your surrogate live in the same state? Not only does that add a layer of complexity, they got to make sure the state laws are still uh, favorable, um, and then you have to find
2: you know lawyers without additional cost in in the other state. And that's another. Um... Reason you know these various sets of attorneys are are helpful um, is all of these contracts may or may not be enforceable in different states, and so for example, one of the things that we had never thought of is 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 the gestational carrier allowed to travel while she's pregnant or after the age of viability or after the age of viability because um, for example, surrogacy is. Uh, illegal, or those contracts are non-enforceable in the state of Indiana. And so uh, this came up in our contract with surrogate number two, and it turns out surrogate number two had family that lived in Indiana, and she wanted to go back to a grandmother's birthday. And so if she was pregnant, at 30 weeks pregnant, so past the age of viability, and she was at her grandmother's birthday and went into labor and had the baby, then... None of those contracts are enforceable, and they yeah. would have put her name on the birth certificate in Indiana, and then imagine all the hoops like to undo, you know, undo all of that. So it's just all of these little little things that you've ever thought of, which you should think of. <laughs> or have someone help you.
1: According to the Folletta and Klein law firm in California, surrogacy attorney fees can cost anywhere between $5,000 and $15,000, which varies by your needs and by state.
3: And actually, we gave this feedback to our surrogacy attorney at one point. Um, we're like, we feel like there should just be like a one-stop shop. Here's the number. It might just feel better as a consumer to just be like
2: okay, here's the number
3: here's the number we got you a to z we're going to usher you through this process
2: because it is stressful i mean you're going through the stress of you know the emotions of this whole process and all of the decisions that have to be made about this process and you know it's going to be expensive and that factors into your decision making right like how you how you're going to go about getting your egg or how you're going to go about who's going to be the gestational carrier. I mean, there's lots of options for all of these things as we've discussed, but you know, then you add to it the the decisions about cost. Well, do you get genetic testing on the embryos or not? Because that's an extra how many over thousands of dollars. Or do you try to use a contract off of legal Zoom or do you, you know, find someone that's done this in your state that can back you up if there happens to be a problem. So there's you know, decision-making points at every case, but it does get frustrating when it, it's seemingly like every week there's a new bill, you know, there's a medication bill, and there's another attorney bill, and there's another, you know, whatever bill, and you're like, oh, geez, <laughs> it just kind of, because it seems like just a lot of little bills start adding up, but um, it would be nice if uh, if there was just like a single bill. I think. <laughs> It'd be easier to swallow. <laughs>
1: It's kind of a miracle that you have Leo with you right now. Any lay person being like, well, I need to learn all of these pieces of, I mean, hopefully this is what this serves, but like, it is a miracle that you have a child after so many years of logistics and learning.
2: And it does speak to, you know, our privilege and, you know, our level of education, right? Like. Like you said, this was a process. Like it is a miracle we've made it this far. And that, and that's, you know, I'm a physician, I'm in medicine, I know how to speak this language. I'm very attuned to the fact that attorneys are involved in every step of every process. And it's still nearly impossible for us. So I can't imagine, you know, I just feel so lucky and and um you know, fortunate that, you know, we were able to do all this.
1: You probably remember Dr. Green, Brian and Ty's fertility specialist. When I spoke with Dr. Green, he mentioned that Colorado has some of the most comprehensive care and protections for surrogacy. And he recommended that I speak with Judith Haigst, who we heard at the top of the episode. It is because of Judith that Colorado surrogacy law is so comprehensive. She is intimately familiar with ART, not only through her practice, but through her years as a nurse and her own tender story of building her family through surrogacy. Here's Judith.
0: My name is Judith Hakst, and I am an assisted reproductive technology uh, and family formation attorney in the Denver, Colorado area, actually in Littleton, Colorado, which is just a suburb uh, just south of Denver, very close to Denver. You know, first of all, um, one in eight people struggle with infertility for whatever reason. It doesn't discriminate between men or women. Um, and it's not one, in, you know, it's it's one in eight people. Um, we happen to have in Colorado Really, really good fertility care. And uh, Dr. Green's clinic has, you know, and one other clinic here in Colorado have the best outcomes in the country, if not in the world. And I can say that I experienced that or watched that when I was at one of those clinics because there were people from all over the world there getting screened and speaking so many different languages and um, going through their medical clearance and their mental health clearance. So I witnessed that, but we really do have, if you you looked on the Centers for Disease Control and looked up fertility clinics across the country and you clicked on Colorado, you would see how many cases are um, being managed by those clinics and what their positive pregnancy rate and their positive live birth rate is. And if you look at other clinics, you'll see that there's a big difference. So people do come from all over the world and all over our country here to Colorado for fertility care. So when I finished law school, um, my first job as the law clerk was uh, for a medical negligence plaintiff's firm. So I represented uh, victims of medical negligence. When I was in law school, I had my first miscarriage. In my second year of law school, I had a second miscarriage. My husband and I tried off and on. We moved a few times. uh, And it was here in Colorado that I finally saw a reproductive endocrinologist at a very good clinic here. And I was diagnosed as having uh, damage to my uterus from a DNC after one of my miscarriages that my lining, my endometrial lining was um, very severely damaged and scarred. My husband and I were able to go through IVF and I did carry our first child, uh, wonderful pregnancy. It was a perfect pregnancy, but I almost lost my life the night that she was born from hemorrhaging due to the damage in my uterus. And um, you know, I had several transfusions. I had three blood transfusions. I was pretty sick, but I recovered very quickly. The weird thing is I remember uh, my husband helping me get out of bed for the first time. And I had my arms around his neck while he helped me get out of bed into a chair. And I had just had my third transfusion. And I remember saying to him, isn't this the greatest? Like, let's do this again, (laughs) and his eyeballs were spinning. Um, But I remember asking him the next day after our daughter was born, I said, if we can't have another child, Please help me find a surrogate, because I don't want just one. And I don't know where that came from, because I never knew anybody who'd been through surrogacy. I knew so little about it.
1: With the help of fertility specialists and a couple of matchmaking surrogacy websites, Judith and her husband found their perfect surrogate. She had a scheduled
0: C-section, and my husband and I were with her in the delivery room my husband and I sat on each side of her head and held her hand and when our son was born I like to say because it's true that I knew his cry in my very soul just as I knew Grace's cry our daughter's cry Um, and we were all crying the nurses were crying the physician was crying it was really you know quite remarkable Um, and we have this beautiful son because of her
1: Could you tell me a little bit about why Colorado is one of the best places to be or have a surrogate?
0: Colorado has been a surrogate-friendly state for a long time, but we didn't have a statute. What, what attorneys who practice in this area, and there's you know a handful plus a few more um, attorneys who practice in this area, what we would do is we would take the Uniform Parentage Act and take pieces of it to... Uh, make an argument to the court as to why the intended parents will be the parents of a baby that they don't physically carry or give birth to um and it was a good argument, and the Boulder district Court would sign those orders so that we would have an order in place before a baby's born that the intended parents' names will go on the birth certificate, not the woman giving birth the surrogate, and not her husband where in every state, the woman who gives birth is considered the parent of that baby. And if she's married, her husband will be considered the parent of that baby. So we have to we have to argue to the court why that's not gonna be the case in a surrogacy. My worry over the years, and I started looking at uh, drafting a surrogacy statute about eight years ago, and I'm 11 years working in this area now. And, um, you know, you have to have on board when you do something like that, you have to have your colleagues on board. And a lot of, co- of my colleagues just felt like if it's not broken, let's not fix it. You know, that we're getting those orders signed. But my worry, and Laura Kopel's worry, and a few other attorneys over time worried that when a political climate changes, that maybe they won't sign those orders anymore, because maybe they don't like the idea that you're a gay or lesbian person trying to have a baby. So could you tell me a little more about the statute that's in place? We have, Dr. Green was right, we have um, the most comprehensive surrogacy statute in the country. And that's because we drafted it, Laura and I drafted it to include genetic surrogacy as well as gestational surrogacy. So gestational surrogacy is when the surrogate has no genetic connection to the baby she's carrying. It's not her egg that formed that embryo that became that baby. Um, genetic surrogacy, the surrogate does have a genetic connection. People also call it traditional surrogacy because that's probably going way back to biblical times, what you know happened when people needed somebody else to carry their baby. Um, but genetic surrogacy can be achieved in a couple of ways. One is um, a fertility clinic can take the egg, the ova, from a woman and do in vitro fertilization and then transfer that embryo back to her. Or you could have intrauterine inseminations done in a medical office where the sperm of um, one of the parents or a parent will be introduced into her cervix or near her cervix so that um, at an appropriate time of the month so that she can become pregnant. Or the third way is, and you know uh, many people don't like it this way but it is done this way where people uh, will do Inseminations at home when they know each other. Um, they'll do it that way. If it is done that way, there really needs to be protections in place for everybody, and particularly um, for the surrogate and her spouse or partner, so that she doesn't contract any communicable diseases or sexually transmitted diseases. So, people going through a genetic surrogacy on their own without medical assistance should not be doing it without getting medical clearance from their physician. Just like if you're going to get pregnant, you go in and say, hey, I'm thinking of getting pregnant. What do I need to do? Oh, we're going to do these tests on you. Let's do some communicable disease testing, STD testing. Let's let's see what your vitamin levels are let's, you know, check your urine, make sure you're, you know, not um, diabetic, or that you're not having any kidney function problems, you know, there's lots of things that a physician would like to look at, or a nurse practitioner would like to look at to make sure that you're healthy to move forward. Um, So there's different, there's just different ways of achieving it. And it's what makes our statute so comprehensive is that it doesn't matter how the pregnancy was achieved as far as genetic or gestational carrier, the statute will still cover you so that the intended parents will be the parents in the end of that child so long as the process requirements and other requirements under the Surrogacy Act
1: are complied with. I know that was a lot of information, but the too-long, don't-read version of this podcast episode is this. If you are going to have a gestational carrier or be a gestational carrier, it is of the utmost importance that you have a comprehensive contract that will protect both you and the other party. And Colorado is a great place to be and have a gestational carrier. Now you know. All right, now back to Brian and Ty. Where we last left off in their story, Brian and Ty had to say goodbye to their first surrogate because of medical complications. This is their process of meeting surrogate number two.
3: At that point, emotionally, um, we had just waited a year almost for surrogate number one, who and and really had loved her and her family, you know, and then we found out after waiting all that time that it was, she was medically disqualified. So we were kind of like, oh, you know, and, um, and I feel like the agency kind of, um, you know, they they really encouraged us to choose surrogate number two. And, you know, right from the beginning, we, we, had, a, we had some reservations. We just didn't like feel the spark. Um, so much so that we had asked the agency at that point, we said, listen, like, can we talk to some other same-sex couples that have gone through surrogacy about their experience, and, and we did, you know, after that meet with two um, two gay male couples here in Denver, um, who had gone through surrogacy with our same surga- surrogacy agency, um, and and we got very mixed feelings, you know, or uh, mixed reviews from them um, about the surrogacy journey. You know, one couple um, very famously, I feel like Ty and I have revisited this in our conversations a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they very famously said to us like. Don't overthink it. At the end of the day, this is a transaction, and we left that conversation just feeling sad. We were like, "Wow, that just is not how we view this." You know, like we think this fantastic human and her family, who are growing our baby, is is like a, an invaluable, amazing, lifelong piece of this journey. You know. And, um, and then we talked to another couple who had a fabulous experience and their surrogate was a, an ICU nurse, um, in pediatrics, um, and they had a fabulous experience and we were like, yeah, that's more, that's more what we're thinking. Um,
4: and not that there's not room for both of those. I think that there's so many different journeys and some couples look at it more like a transaction and other couples look at it like a lifelong friendship or even part of the family. And even, and and some go on to have them be part of the family, you know, after their child's born, but it just wasn't what we had envisioned and it never really sat well with us.
3: And for couples listening, like that is a, that is a conversation that, that you all should have, you know, is like, what do we want this journey to be? And, And that's a great point, Ty, like, it doesn't have to be the same as our journey. There are some couples who They don't really want to have a lot of contact. They for some reason that makes them uncomfortable, or you know, and that should just be openly discussed to make sure that your surrogate and her family are also a good match for that.
4: Yeah, that everyone's on the same page.
3: Yeah. So surrogate number two, um, you know, we just matched and just kind of said, okay, we we have a couple like weird kind of in the back of our head, but nothing we could put our finger on, like why it didn't feel quite right. Um, but, you know, I would also encourage couples who, who, who feel like you're, you're intuitive like that, or feel like you have that feeling to explore that a little bit more than, than perhaps we did, you know, she, she and her husband, they, they felt young to us. Is that fair to say? Like, if, yeah,
4: I mean, it's, it's a weird experience because she's already done this five times. She's had five pregnancies and had five children and we've done it zero times and so, but all, so she was clearly experienced and qualified and all those things, but, but the relationship felt immature or felt young.
1: Despite the reservations, Brian and Ty decided to move forward with surrogate number two.
4: We had her and her
3: husband and, and children over to our house. And, you know, we went through the transfer and uh, the whole thing just felt kind of weird.
1: They ultimately decided to move forward with the transfer, and transferred two embryos into their surrogate. After the transfer day, their sense of unease and discomfort began to build. When it came time to learn the results of the transfer, they were devastated to find that the transfer did not take. We
3: think that she had an idea that it didn't work. and communication just was not great. The hormone, the, the number they do lab work along the way in the next two weeks to track hormone levels to give you an idea if the pregnancy is taking the numbers weren't looking real good, but they weren't terrible. So we were we were kind of, um, you know, so scared. <laughs> so scared, you know, we're so emotionally vested, financially invested at this point, that, you know, there was a lot of pressure. Um, and all along the way she's supposed to continue to take hormones and it is the opinion of our reproductive endocr- endocrinologist and, and the team that perhaps she didn't follow the protocol and continue taking her hormones um, because hormones are pretty straightforward you put them in your body you take some blood out you can measure the level of hormones in the blood like it's, it's pretty straightforward they are metabolized obviously but you know it, within a, an appropriate time frame um, and their their read on the scenario was that we did not have a successful pregnancy, and they couldn't rule out the fact that she didn't follow the protocol with the hormones.
4: We later came to find that there were some, you know, deviations from the hormone protocol and and various things that were, you know, very disappointing. Um, but at the end of the day, we just um, it didn't work, and we got to the point where we had to reevaluate whether we were going to go on to surrogate number three.
3: Yeah, I mean, it. I think the that was tens of thousands of dollars of lost genetic material, right? Alone, plus the actual procedures, and plus the, you know, and um, you know, that's that's a lot of money to us. <laughs> that's a lot. It, it was a lot. Um, in addition,
4: yeah. In addition, I mean, it was time. I think probably more than anything, it was the time of finding the egg donor and going through the cycle of IVF and creating the embryos and waiting for the genetic testing and then coming up with our plan that, you know, was lost. And it was lost because I only had one embryo. And so we transferred one of Brian's and one of my embryos, and then they didn't take. And so I didn't have any embryos left. And that just completely changed, you know, the story that we were that we had told ourselves and that we were planning on. Um, and so then we were on top of this, you know, disappointment of it not working with the second surrogate, then we had to kind of retell our story. So now are we gonna go back to the drawing board, find another, or go back to our egg donor and create another round of IVF so we can try this story again and set things back for a year? Which we inquired about, and then unfortunately, our egg donor said that she wasn't willing to donate again. And so, you know, now that story is not even possible, um, no matter how long we wait. So- um, And and for me, that that
3: was like a real death. Like that was um, like the lowest point in all of this for me specifically, because now our story that we had emotionally invested in and financially invested in and and really planned and worked on for four or five years at that point, you know, um, it was not possible.
1: Next time on It Takes a Village, What happens when the thing you've been dreaming and scheming and creating for five years is no longer possible? Stay close.